You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Why is sexual harassment so pervasive and so hard to address? Let's interrogate the whole system. Hi, my name is Jody Cantor. I'm an investigative reporter for the New York Times. What have you got? I was told that the wrongdoing in Hollywood is overwhelming. I don't want to be quoted. Period. Understood. In your previous stories, how did you persuade women to tell you what had happened to them? The case I made was, I can't change what happened to you in the past, but together we may be able to help protect other people. The truth, basically. What is it exactly that we're looking at here? These young women walked into what they all had reason to believe were business meetings. I can still see it, the hotel room, the floor plan. He kept trying to touch me. I asked him to leave me alone. Instead, they say he met them with threats and sexual demands. I was young, scared. Hi. We're from the New York Times. I believe he used to work for Harvey Weinstein. People have tried to write this story before. He kills it every time. Harvey adamantly denies any allegation of assault. He played people. He was a master manipulator. Will you give me just one chance to talk to you? Are you sure that this isn't just young women who want to sleep with a movie producer to try to get ahead? This is bigger than Weinstein. This is about the system protecting abusers. The women who receive these settlements, they can't speak out. They'll be sued if they do. But if someone could speak freely about the payouts... What payouts, John? You have to imagine that every call you make is being recorded and you're being followed. Can you imagine how many Harveys there are out there? You want to get me killed. Do you wish you hadn't signed up for this story? Do you? No. The only way these women are going to go on the record is if they all jump together. We're all here, Harvey. Who have you talked to? I have three daughters, and I don't want them to ever accept abuse or bullying. I'll go on the record. Go write. It's time to write. This is all going to come out. I was silenced. I want my voice back. Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Now, in this episode, I'm rejoined by Louise Godbold, survivor of Harvey Weinstein and trauma specialist. Now, the clip at the top of the episode, that was the She Said trailer. And if you haven't seen the movie yet, I highly recommend that you do. It's incredibly powerful, validating and relatable. And it details the New York Times investigation by Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey, as well as the amazing women's journey, their courage of going on the record to protect others. 
You know, part of our healing journey and process is being listened to, being validated and being empowered. Being silenced is the opposite of that. It's corrosive to the soul. Having your voice heard and getting your voice back is the first step to recovery and stepping into your power. In this episode, you're going to hear about other strategies and tactics to help heal trauma and also about how we move from victim to survivor to thriver. And listener discretion is advised. These aren't easy conversations, but they're important conversations. So let's jump into part two of the conversation with Louise Godbolt. Let's talk a bit about trauma and trauma-informed practice and some of the principles I know that you feel strongly about in trauma-informed, unless you want to respond first to, I said a lot of stuff there, so, you know, feel free to to weigh in and then we can go into trauma-informed. It's great. I mean, you bring up so many things and I was just, it's so hard for me because this is personal as well as professional. And it's personal as well as being indicative of what we as women generally experience. So it's sometimes hard for me to kind of pass through. And as you were talking, and you were talking about no woman should expect to see somebody's penis going to a work meeting, but it made me think about traveling on the train between Wallington in Surrey, where I was brought up, and Victoria Station. In the old days, they used to have those carriages that were small carriages with just one door you know you once you were in you could walk along the carriage and even as a schoolgirl, I remember you know men casually whipping out their penis and uh or walking home from school and there is a kind of uh numbing because it happens to us so often and that's part of the confusion about when people say why didn't you report who the hell was I supposed to report to? I mean, I was an employee at Miramax. That kind of thing had happened to me so often, I didn't even think the police would have taken me seriously, and they probably wouldn't have done. And we are inured to it. You know, we we have, most of the time, we spend our lives dodging men who are trying to make unwanted advances. It's just a fact of life. And so separating out what is, you know, just another annoying attempt to engage you or clumsy attempt and, and what is actual sexual battery, which is apparently what it was in my case, uh, it's very difficult for us because it's a continuum. It's a continuum. It's not in a vacuum this thing happens. It's part of a continuum that we've experienced all our lives. I can't nod enough. <laughs> and going back to the whole thing of the amount of time that elapses, it's really hard, and anybody who has been a sexual assault victim or a domestic violence victim, I think, will understand me. It's really hard to put those labels on yourself because these are big official sounding things that happen to other people or you read about in the newspaper. And even my mother, when I tried to disclose the childhood sexual abuse that I'd had, her first attempt was to normalize it. You know, well, we've all experienced that. or you know, it was just a fumble or it's very hard for us to be able to label these experiences for what they are. And we make excuses for the person involved. Oh, he didn't mean to do that. Or he hit me because he got so frustrated and he couldn't find the words or whatever. 
it takes a long time before you can actually put that label on yourself and acknowledge it for what it was. That's one thing. As I said, the other is, you know, who are you supposed to be reporting to is the most immediate thing. But with child sexual abuse, which is another area I'm really interested in for obvious personal reasons, as well as trauma reasons, but on average, people are in their 40s or 50s before they disclose. And and it might not even be that before they disclose, it might be before they're even aware of what happened. Because we interpret the experience with the frame of reference that we have at the time and also with the vulnerabilities that we have at the time. So if daddy says that we're going to do lovies or whatever, or this is love, how does a five-year-old know the difference? And, and that didn't happen to me, by the way. God rest my poor father's memory in case anyone is thinking that. But there are so many factors to why someone doesn't just march into a police station. But I have to say, in Harvey's case, there were plenty of women who did immediately report to HR. Immediately, like Amber Gutierrez, go to the police. So there's not even that excuse in that case. Yes, very good points. Well, it's always the issue that women can't win when they report, because if they report, there's a high chance that they won't be believed or taken seriously. And and that first point about believe all women, because lots of people buzz me on that, that you're always saying believe all women. No, that's not what I say. I'm saying start from the basis that you believe and you have an open mind. Don't start from the basis that you don't believe just because someone's a woman reporting. that, And that's the difference of good investigation where you have an open mind, you're not making a preconceived judgment about what a victim really would be like if it happened. And that's what happens a lot in the police. I worked in the police for 10 years. I ran the sexual offences section for five years. So I worked with thousands of, of victims and officers and understood that preconceived, well, if it really happened, Laura, she would have done X or Y. And once that judgment creeps in and it creeps in early, then she's seen as somebody who's not credible and as a false complainant. And that happens more often than not. And in fact, most of the domestic violence murders that I've worked and reviewed, the victims have come forward and they've not been believed. So so that's the, the bump that we have to get over. It's not saying just believe everybody and never investigate and ask questions. It's why do you come from a position of not believing? So if she comes forward, then she may or may not be believed. That's the biggest challenge. And for women that we know going through the criminal justice system is a hostile environment too. We're going to be called liars. We're going to be discredited. We're going to have teams of lawyers questioning us in the most horrific, traumatic moments of our lives. It's going to be put on display. So there's a lot at stake when you do report. And I don't think people always really understand that. And those judgments, I think lots of people do make those judgments. We saw it with the Amber Heard trial. Well, if she were a real victim then X or Y. You're meant to behave in a certain way. And if you're out of that script, then you're not believable or credible. So the education piece is huge that, that we have to do. And the fact that, you know, through all my work and research, yes, child sexual abuse victims, of course, report much later in life. That's the norm. So again, educating people of what to expect and that women's experiences are different to men. We risk assess everything that we do. And we've done that from a very young age. 
But yet the irony is we know the prevalence rates for sexual abuse and for rape and for domestic violence and for stalking. And yet when someone come, when a woman comes forward, we don't believe them. That's always the contradiction in terms for me of women constantly navigating the world of, do I go out running this morning at 5am? Well, it's a bit dark and if something happened, well, why were you out running? And the focus will be on why I was out running at 5am rather than why there's a perpetrator who decided to, to harm me. So again, flipping that script all the time of looking at the perpetrator's behaviour and how they've been allowed to exploit that power imbalance. And so, you know, when I'm talking to you, Lou, I can see you're, you're processing in all sides of your brain because it's your experience, but you're also, you understand trauma very well. And that's oftentimes a lot where we, we all come from, particularly when we've been abused, that we're trying to still make sense of things for ourselves. And of course, for you, you're still waiting for the Los Angeles trial because it is such a, it's personal to you. It's something that, that you've experienced, you've been there, you know, you understand the dynamics. You walked into the room with Harvey Weinstein, you went through it from a personal experience. I'm talking from a professional experience of what I see with 27 years of working in 10 of them in law enforcement for my sins, running the sexual offences section and the homicide prevention unit and so forth, but working with survivors and trying to correct narratives and trying to educate at the same time. And we've still got a lot of work to do, haven't we, when we've got all these excuses being put into the zeitgeist about the fact that, well, this is about transactional sex, this is about regrets that women have. Why would there be a regret? I mean, it, that narrative just makes no sense whatsoever when there's so much to lose and that rape is still rape. And no one should be untouchable. No one. And that, for me, is the importance of the LA trial. And you mentioned a London trial. We've heard that being discussed. I don't know if there's any further update on whether that will happen or not. I don't know about that, but I'm glad you brought up that Amber Heard trial because that was such a smack in the face to women and to sexual assault and domestic violence survivors. And the biggest smack in the face was the number of female Johnny Depp fans who completely eviscerated Amber Heard. That was a shameful, shameful part of our history and just even more shameful that it could happen after supposedly Me Too traveled the world. But one of the problems, I think, is, and that's not been pointed out by me, but others, that if you are a survivor, then if someone acts in a way different to how you reacted, you're going to say, oh, well, that's not how a survivor reacts. And so it all gets very nuanced. But I think it's very important that survivors' lived experience is part of our education because you would think that that is a truism, but the Society for Professional Journalism keeps having these webinars and sessions on trauma-informed journalism. They have yet to actually invite a survivor so basically, it's a bunch of journalists saying, oh, aren't we doing a great job being trauma-informed? Well, who, who measures that? The person who's on the receiving end. So apparently, it's not quite as obvious as, as it should be. But And at the same time, we've made the caveat that just because you're a trauma survivor does not make you a trauma expert. And there are plenty of trauma experts who are survivors, and there are plenty of survivors who are trauma experts, but you can't necessarily conflate the two. 
And that's where things went wrong with Amber Heard and all the all the so-called fans who said, well, she didn't behave in a way that was typical of a domestic violence survivor because it didn't correspond to their own experience. And I was recently part of putting together a series of tips for journalists for UNESCO. Joe Healy is a former BBC reporter who was putting it together. And she consulted some from the survivors from a charity in England. And um, she was going to run with some of their suggestions. And I had to point out, just because that person experienced it that way, you can't then extrapolate that and apply that to everybody. So I have to be careful what I say here because I do want to advocate for the survivor's voice to be included. I do want to advocate for direct experience to be part of what informs us. And with my work at ECHO, I usually hire trauma survivors because they have that experience. And I'm going to pinch something I saw in a news clip today um, from Britain about racism and a black woman was saying there's an African proverb that uh, she feels and the one who feels I'm going to screw it up but if, if she feels she knows calling all lovers of mystery prepare to don your detective hat in June's journey a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Do you know the one I'm talking about? I do. I, I did watch that clip and it was very powerful. It was very powerful, yeah. Okay, I'm diving in here because I want you to hear the clip for yourself. Now, this clip relates to racism and the Harry and Meghan Netflix, but it's absolutely applicable here too. Take a listen to this. ...lead with counselling is because many people, including myself from the black community, what I have had to do, many others, I've had to sit patiently, okay, and I've had to watch white people dictate to black people what racism is. You cannot tell me, as a black woman, what racism is. You cannot tell me what, uh, what racism is. I am here to tell you, just like Megan with her documentary, she's had to sit and listen to everyone tell her what her reality is. So you know what? Now it's time for her to speak. And just like with black people, you cannot come along and tell me what racism is. I am here to tell you. And the reason why, let me just make it clear for you. She who feels knows it more. African proverb. Please remember that. It will do you justice. So, yes, we have to have that included. But at the same time, we have to understand that everybody's experience is different. And that's where education comes in. Because I think trauma survivors, once educated, can become a very powerful force for advocating for policy and law changes. But we've seen how it goes wrong. The Amber Heard case was a great example of how that can go wrong. Yes. And I think it talks to listening to lots of different survivors you know, if you're doing focus group work and, and so forth, then you want a broad range of experiences. But your experience is your experience that you're an expert on, but you're not an expert on other people's experience. And I was just talking to a number of professionals about that yesterday, about how important that is to understand that. 
You know, it's the same as if you're talking with a domestic violence survivor, they may not have gone through the family court. So they're not an expert on everything that happens to victims of domestic violence. You're only aware of your own experience. So I do think that that is important. There are some principles, aren't there, that if you want to be trauma-informed, because I hear the words trauma-informed being bandied about all over the place, but rarely are services actually trauma-informed, and certainly the criminal justice system and civil justice system are not trauma-informed. And there's a long way to go in terms of learning about what trauma-informed looks like. Do you want to share, you've mentioned ECHO, do you want to just share some of the work of ECHO and your principles for trauma-informed practice? Well, trauma-informed, it's multi-layered because face value, trauma-informed means being informed about trauma. But that's not really being trauma-informed in my mind because we do a lot of professional development trainings. And what I always say is, we always, as professionals, want to get better. We want to be good at what we do. We get a great deal of our identity from what we do and our satisfaction from doing it well. And the problem that I've seen, again, it's a nuanced thing. So we want people to be trauma-informed. I'm not saying we don't. But the next step from that is professionals so often want to drive the process. And, oh, we've got all this knowledge now. And, oh, I can get inside your head because I'm trauma-informed. The moment that a trauma-informed professional is trying to anticipate what a survivor might want, you've already stripped the survivor of power and control over their own experience. And you mentioned Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. Another great author is Judith Herman, Trauma and Recovery. And she talks about the fact that during the trauma, your power and control was taken from you. You don't have the power and control to be able to stop what's happening to you and defend yourself. And so ever after, it's going to be really important that you have power and control and at least over your, your personal autonomy. I'm not talking about world domination, but your personal autonomy. And that's what's so often forgotten when professionals in their haste and excitement to create trauma-informed environments and trauma-informed protocols. And they start to anticipate what the survivor wants. And often being trauma-informed is not about having a really in-depth understanding of the physiological processes, although I would recommend that too. But often it's as simple as asking the survivor what they want, giving them choice. Fallow and Harris have a set of five principles of uh, what it is to be trauma-informed. And I use those because they're very quick and succinct. Safety, choice, collaboration, trustworthiness, and empowerment. And empowerment is really important because it goes back to giving survivors autonomy. And you can't empower somebody because <laughs> that's a contradiction of terms uh, because your power is making this thing happen. We have to give the power over to the survivor. And we talk about that at ECHO as power with rather than power over. So what happens is so often the professionals try and take a power over approach and they still think they're being trauma-informed and they may be in, in the literal sense that they understand and are informed about trauma. And they're doing it with a great deal of compassion and kindness, but that does not make that trauma-informed unless the power dynamic is adjusted 
so that that survivor feels some measure of power and control over themselves. You are not going to be providing a trauma-informed environment because you're still holding all the power and the survivor is still disempowered and not able to assert the power and control, which is healing. Yes. I think that, you know, having run a trauma-informed service, Paladin for Victims of Stalking, and all my work in the police was about giving victims choices and allowing them to make informed choice about what happens next. And even the risk assessment tools I've created, as I always say in the training, it's about risk and it's about need because need is important. You don't necessarily always ask as a professional what someone needs. And oftentimes survivors may not know right at the time they're going through something, but it will give them something to think about of their wants, their needs, and also risk that professionals have to think about. I like the fact that those principles are very clear for professionals to think about. And I would love to see more professionals being educated in terms of their trauma-informed response, the unpicking of the stereotypes, the judgment, that little voice in our head that we have when we're interacting with someone, and then the trying to railroad victims down certain routes. And then when they don't go down those routes, I, and I heard this in the police all the time, that they are a hostile victim, a hostile witness. So the language we have to change, we kind of go right back to where we began, which is the term accuser, which is a very negative term for, normally it's for sexual abuse victims, but I have heard it crossing now over into domestic violence, particularly after Amber Heard's and the Johnny Depp trial. The, the legacy of that is a big problem. But I think the the positive, Lou, and you know, you are part of this, is that understanding what's happened to you and being able to move into a survivor mode and being able to share experience and be able to start to heal and recover, because there is hope and there is life after, isn't there? It, it shouldn't be just your defining point. There's more to all of us than just an ex, than, than our experience of being abused by someone else. And that is about stepping into your own power and having your voice heard and being able to help others heal. But the journey of healing and recovery, do you want to say something about that? Well, it is, yes. Part of it is autonomy and being able to step back into your power. It's impossible to go into in this particular podcast, but there's so many changes that happen to the brain and to the autonomic nervous system as a result of trauma that are physical changes. And you can't just wave a magic wand and expect that all to reset. And part of the resetting is learning how to regulate your nervous system. The other part is, and this is the hard thing, relationships. Because if you've been a victim of interpersonal trauma, then the last thing you're going to do is trust relationships, trust intimate partners, um, trust the people who were supposed to love and nurture you, who betrayed you. And I wrote a piece called The Intolerable Pure, which is about my very late in life marriage. And just how difficult, just from a personal experience, it is to be able to be in relationships because of earlier betrayals. And, and yet we know that people heal through relationship. And I just read a piece today in Neuroscience News that talked about oxytocin, which is the hormone that's produced when we are in the company of people that we feel safe with. And it doesn't have to be a romantic partner, but 
anybody that we feel safe, we have affection for, our oxytocin levels rise. And this new uh, research was showing that neural pathways, the synapses of the neuron, grow when there's a presence of oxytocin, and they can't when there isn't that oxytocin. So if we're talking about neuroplasticity, about our brain structures being able to change, our neural pathways being able to change, the science says we need to be in relationship. And so for anybody who's thinking, heck no, that's not going to happen. It doesn't have to even be with a human being. For some people who can't tolerate relationship with another human being, which we sometimes find with people, especially children who've been in really bad situations of abuse, Another large mammal, like a dog or a horse, because they have a similar brain structure when it comes to the fear center of the brain, a regulated animal can create a regulated human being. And that bond can create the production of oxytocin, which allows for the creation of, of new pathways. And that's what it's about. And Bruce Perry is the expert in all of this. And he talks about that it takes thousands of these loving, safe, nurturing interactions for someone to heal. There is no succession cognitive behavioral therapy. There is no you know, magic wand that if your experience of life has been that the people and the institutions around you will betray you and cause you harm, then your brain's going to need lots and lots of positive reinforcement before it will start to believe that you can possibly be safe in the world and be safe in relationships and be safe in institutions. Very important points. And I'm glad you mentioned dysregulation because oftentimes, and I, I think about the Gabby Petito case, which I unpicked on Crime Analyst across 20 parts. What I was seeing on camera of the police stop from Gabby was emotional dysregulation, which actually pointed to the fact that she was suffering and had been abused, rather than seeing her as an hysterical young woman that is reacting in a disproportionate way. And, and these are the cues that we want people to think about when understanding someone's experience. And once we identify it, then we can help people start to move into regulating. But you can only regulate, as you say, when you're safe, when you feel that you are in a different environment where you feel safe. Otherwise, you're going to continue to be dysregulated. And I love that you talked about equine therapy or, um, you know, I've got a golden doodle, Beatrice, who I adore, but and she sits by me even when I record. The calming presence and, you know, just a small example is I recently had headshots done and, and B found her way into those shots. My best shots are where she's sat right next to me and she's on camera with me. And it's a change that you can see in someone. Now, if you can magnify that to help children and to help adults when they've suffered or even going to court, having a support animal with you to help regulate, but it's a process, isn't it? And there's no magic wand, like you say. It's the recovery process is intense and having people around you that you feel safe with. It's not rocket science, really, but it's not equally as easy for that to happen, particularly if a child is in a situation where there's an abuser that they're continuously coming into contact with and we're not asking the right questions and they don't have the right language to be able to explain. We go back to what you said about the five-year-old who doesn't know what love is and what normal is and what 
that sexual contact is not normal. It's abnormal and they don't have the vocabulary and the language to, to tell us about what's going on. So it's, it's not easy, but the more we have these conversations, the better for people to understand and identify what some of the signs are. Emotional dysregulation, there's questions to be asked there. And we can help people, even with podcasting, the intimacy of listening to this conversation in your ears. Because I know a lot of my listeners are survivors and they take all the things that they hear and they start to use them in their everyday. So what would be some of your, if you could say what a, a top tip might be for somebody? You've talked about regulation of emotions and so on. What are some of the things that might that you think are very helpful for someone to know about that they should think about? I think it is very helpful to understand about the mechanic of trauma, what happens in our brains and what happens to our bodies, because then you don't feel like you're crazy. The feedback that I get from most of the survivors who we train and who I talk to, just knowing you're not crazy is a great help. And then whether you're a survivor or somebody who supports survivors, understanding, again, about the physiology of trauma, because, again, you can overgeneralize. So I use a face cloth, a flannel that's damp, and I put it in the freezer, and I take it with me whenever I know, for example, I'm going to get a shot because I'm a big old baby and I faint. And that's my kind of grounding tool that keeps me very much in the present. But that doesn't mean everyone could go immediately do that because the regulation strategy that works for you is the regulation strategy that works for you. You just have to figure out when you're in a calm place what it is that helps you regulate and then you know, have a, a few of those tools in your tool belt to be able to use. And if you have children, to help them figure out what their regulation tools are. And there's a lot that we can do as survivors to hack our autonomic nervous system. The easiest is breath. You know, we can't control other aspects of our body getting ready to fight or to flee. We can't slow our heart down just by thinking about it, or at least I can't. Maybe some Zen masters can, but we can control our breathing. And we can figure out, are our shoulders up around our ears? What does that feel like if we just put our shoulders down? Does that make us feel a little better? Does it make us feel better when we open up our bodies that's what you do in yoga. You open up the front of your body and it makes your body think, oh, you must be safe because otherwise you'd be clinging to a person or a tree. There's all these different things that you can do that make sense um, in terms of what is happening to your anatomy during trauma and then afterwards when you get re-stimulated to experience that trauma. But I would also say it's great to have those tools because that gives you the power and control, which is why I don't talk about being triggered because if you talk about a trigger, that trigger has power. No, we are controlling our nervous system. We can control our response. Um, so that's why I talk about being activated. Then it goes back to, you talked about sending a child back into an abusive environment. You can give that child all the tools you like, but unless you change the environment, you really aren't going to have very much impact. So in the midst of all of this, we were talking about the language that's used and I think behind the language is not just a matter of being PC and using the right words. It's the judgment is what we're talking about, Laura. It's like the judgments that happen. And we have to change the mindset so that there isn't all this judgment. And that's important for sexual assault survivors. It's important for everybody 
let's just quit with all the judgmental attitudes. If you look and you reframe, so the person is a control freak. No, they're not. They experience trauma and they, at some level of their consciousness, determined they were never going to be out of control again because they got hurt when they weren't in control. We look at someone and say, they're manipulative. Well, let's reframe that. Maybe they never had their needs met as a child. And so they got really good at getting their needs met through all means possible. And we label that as manipulative. And every time we label someone, we're dismissing them. I had somebody talk about a parenting series we're doing and about the parents were lazy. I'm like, well, let's look at that. No, they just prefer to do virtual trainings because otherwise they have transportation issues, they have childcare issues. Let's change the way that we look at the world and try and be a little bit more compassionate, a little less judgmental and a whole lot more power with than power over. We go back to taking out the patriarchy, I'm afraid, Lou, which is all about the power over. And that's everything that is problematic, isn't it? If you're working with and alongside, coming alongside people, it's a very different experience to, you know, as professionals trying to control them and trying to push them into a certain way of doing or being. I was thinking a lot about what you were describing, and I know I've kept you on for a, a long time, but the conversation's been really interesting. And I was hoping to move into this space to talk about some things that, you know, you find helpful. And with trauma, it is about finding the things that work for you, whether it's podcasting, running, movement, yoga. I always think something physical is very helpful because it moves, the, the the flow changes in your body and your energy, you know, music, there's lots of different things. And the more I think people are, tell others about the things that they use and you can experience and try out different techniques and, and find something that works for you of the grounding that brings you back. But as you were talking about, you know, making your body small and hunched and so on, you know, I think about Gabby Petito and the way she was hunched and a lot of victims that I work with, I can tell from their, the way they hold their bodies, what's going on for them, making themselves small. You know, when women cross their feet over and make themselves small, all these things tell me about someone's life experience. It doesn't tell me the full story, but when someone's trying to make them, themselves small, there's a reason for that versus a man where well, we talk about manspread, you know, taking up a huge amount of space and standing there, you know, taking up space. We give a lot of cues by behaviour. And oftentimes I always think with trauma, it's about unlearning a lot of things as well, things that don't serve us anymore. And so a lot of adulthood is learning new things, reparenting yourself, isn't it? And finding the things that that work and it's very idiosyncratic. So I'll end there unless, you know, there's anything that you would really like to say that we haven't covered. Now's your time. We've covered a lot of ground and it's been really helpful and really interesting talking with you. And I could talk with you for a very long time, but is there anything else we haven't mentioned that you feel that you would like to say? Well, I think you and I connected again around the whole accuser, Monica. I try and help people understand by talking about the difference between how we treat a victim of a purse snatching and sexual assault. And I think, you know, I wish to God Harvey Weinstein had snatched my purse. It would have been so much easier than trying to navigate this. And if we can do anything with this podcast and with the message that we're putting out into the world, 
let's be clear in our thinking and let's be aware of the prejudices and the judgments that are creeping in in the with the terminology that we use and the rest will follow it's as simple as that and i i do think language language is really important because it sets the the temperature doesn't it it's it's such an important construct in the way that we communicate and the labels that we use and as you said the judgment that can creep in whether it's at a conscious or subconscious level and i oftentimes think a lot of it is at a subconscious level but then when you've got lawyers and pr crisis companies coming in it's at a very strategic level so we should always question those things when we see it in the media and we should not just accept that that is okay. That's an okay way to describe somebody who's made an allegation of sexual violence or domestic violence. And also the what I call the, the sex bias of if you flip the script and apply it to a man, how does that land? In the same way or different? And oftentimes it's different. So that's what we call a double standard. And we should all be questioning that and querying that and not just accepting of it. Most crime reporters are male, actually, and that's also why a lot of stories are written from the male POV, not the female POV, and a lot of people don't think about that either. But our nuance, you mentioned the word nuance a lot, Lou, and I love nuance. I'm all about granular detail and nuance, and, that, and we all should be, because it really matters. It really matters to survivors. It really matters to our healing and our recovery, and having empathy and holding space for each other and being compassionate. It may not be your experience and that's okay, but don't project your experience onto someone else. Give them the freedom of expression. That's important too. So thank you very much for your time. I've really appreciated speaking with you. We met at the Women's Power Summit and uh, you know I listened to you there and now we've reconnected again. And when you come to LA, I hope we can find time to have a cup of coffee or a, or a glass of wine. It would be nice to, to meet in the real world again. Well, actually, I'm going to be there next week because the Power Women's Summit is happening again. Oh, so you're coming over for the Power Summit. Well, I may well see you there then in that case. Oh, good. So yeah, yes. I mean, I, there's, there's so many things in my mind. I mean, I'd love to talk to you about enemy images and why I don't like using the word patriarchy, even though I don't disagree that the concept exists, but how we so easily go into enemy images. I wanted to talk about that a little bit another time, maybe. And there was something else as well. I thought, oh, yes, I could just go off on a whole big tangent about that, but never mind. <laughs> Uh, well, you end up having to do a twenty-part series. <laughs> it always is. Like I could easily, easily do that, but uh, that's the freedom of producing a, a podcast. So you can do different parts. So yes, let's. Ho hopefully, we can get together next week. I haven't put that in my diary for sure. The, the Women's Power Summit, but I probably will be there. So, and uh, if the stars align, wouldn't it be wonderful if the verdict comes in on the Wednesday when? A lot of us, the uh, Weinstein survivors, going to be there at the Power Women Summit, and Sharon Waxman has been such a champion for all of us it would be great if that's when it comes down but you know that's just wishful thinking yes well sometimes we manifest and that's what happens so but if i manage that you can book your appointment with uh, lou gobble chief manifester <laughs> there we go there we go well excellent well, thank you so much for spending time with me and uh, for educating my listeners as well and for sharing your experience i i really appreciate it and uh, i hope to see you next week so thank you very much lou all right, see you next week. Okay, I'm jumping back in here to wrap the episode. 
I really hope you found our conversation helpful and illuminating. There are many strategies and tactics that can help with trauma. But the first thing is recognising it. So if we are activated or triggered, we know it's for us to do the work. And it's lifelong work. So when it shows up and we're triggered, that's a sign that we have unresolved trauma. And unprocessed and unresolved trauma often shows up in negative ways, which is often damaging to ourselves when we use destructive coping mechanisms like alcohol and or drugs, or if we self-harm. And those sorts of coping mechanisms tend to be used to dull and numb the feelings and the thoughts. Or sometimes we project it onto other people rather than recognise it and deal with our own trauma. And it is our work to do. And like I said, it's life work. It's doing the work every day. But we're not to blame and we're not responsible for an abuser's behaviour. I want to make that clear. But we are responsible for what we do about it, the impact that it has on us and identifying when we need help and ensuring that we don't project our behaviour onto others or our experience either. And that sometimes shows up when we hear people say things like, well, if they were a real victim, they'd do X, Y or Z. So just be conscious about language, the language that you use and also the language that others use. Challenge it. Change it. Call out double standards as well and be part of the change. Use your voice. There's power in it. Okay, so take good care of yourself. Until next time. Be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. Here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to Crime Analyst or on the website www.crime-analyst.com. It really helps others find me and also helps with the ratings. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Robottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrood. 